Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 3, Episode 6, Soaked by Gold. A long, long time ago, no, even before that, before history began, in northern India in a small kingdom ruled King Raghu. Raghu means swift, but King Raghu was a big man, thick-necked, had an elephant-like body, but charming with it. And the most important thing about King Raghu was that he never left a job half done. Raghu decided one day that he was going to conquer all of India, all the four directions. So he took his army and he headed out east, down the Ganga. And he conquered the Vangas, he conquered every army he met. He passed on straight through them until he met the sea itself. He'd conquered the east. Then he turned his army right southwards, down the coast of India, conquering again everything that came in his way until he met the pearl cities of the south. He'd conquered the south. And then he headed west, inland, across the mountains, until he reached the sea on the other side, conquering the west. And then he headed north, up the coast again, conquering everything in his way. And because he was King Raghu, because he never left a job half done, he carried on. He went over the Himalayas, into the mountains, and headed again eastward, all the way to Assam. King Raghu had conquered the four directions. He'd conquered the east, the south, the west and the north. He headed home victorious, with a huge train of kings defeated behind him. To celebrate, Raghu gave a great sacrifice, a sacrifice that marked him as the universal conqueror. And the sacrifice, the ritual, was very simple in its essence. You just had to give all of your possessions away. And Raghu, because he never left a job half done, he followed the sacrifice to the letter. The doors of his treasury were thrown open. Golden coins were laden into golden pots and they were taken out, carried out and given to the Brahmins. For as the poet says, acquisition is for distribution. It must have taken days to give give away all that he had. He'd conquered the whole of India. He'd become very rich. But now... Raghu was poor. The treasury doors swung idly about in the wind. No point in locking them shut. Nothing inside to hide anymore. Raghu, at the end, had nothing left but his old worthless chariot and a few simple weapons. And all the kings that he'd conquered, all the kings he'd carried back to his capital, all of them were deeply moved. He'd treated them with respect. He'd hung garlands of flowers around their heads. And now he released them. He told them, go back to your wives, go back to your homelands. Each of the enemy kings came before the penniless Raghu. They bowed down and they kissed his feet until his toes were yellow with the pollen from the garlands of the fallen kings. Now, at that very moment, a young man came to court. He was a student. He'd studied over on the West Coast with one of the greatest of all the sages. Some people say he was the sage's own son. The king rushed out to greet him with shining generosity. How's your teacher? I hope the hermitage is going well. How are the deer going? And and have any of them given birth? 
The king even inquired after the state of the water at the hermitage. The young man assured him that all was going well back home. And then the young man started to explain why he had come. Actually, he wasn't a student anymore because he'd just graduated. He was about to undertake that important transition in ancient Indian life from student to householder. And as he had left his teacher's house, he had offered his teacher some money as payment for all the years that he had taught him. The teacher didn't take it well. He was mightily offended. The teacher thought that this relationship with his student was more than just a transactional relationship, more than just a contract. And it was the sort of thing that was rightly paid back by devotion from his student. And now his student was offering him money? Well, if that's how the student saw things, the teacher thought, I'll make him pay. And he demanded from the student 14 crores of gold coins, one for every subject he had taught the student. And the student didn't have the money. He was just a student. So he'd come to the new ruler of the world, King Raghu, to ask for help. But, the student said, he could see that the king was now penniless, and he admired it, and he was sorry for having bothered the king. The student turned away to leave. But King Raghu wasn't going to have any of that. He didn't leave a job half done. He stopped the student in his tracks. I'll not have it said that anyone can leave me empty-handed, he said. Stay a few days here. I'll give you your fee. King Raghu was in a bind. He needed money to pay the student, but he had none of his own. But he did have a plan. He was going to make war on Kubra, the god of wealth. Raghu left his palace, it was empty anyway. He went to go and sleep in his last possession, his chariot, with his weapons about him, ready to travel to battle the gods the moment he awoke. Early in the morning, Raghu was woken up. Officials had come and they were shaking him and they'd come with news. They said, we're from the treasury. And they told him how at sundown the treasury would be completely empty because all of the gold had been given out. But at night, the god Kubera had come and it had rained gold, and the golden rain had filled up the treasury, and now there was enough to pay the student, to pay the exorbitant fees of that teacher. In fact, there was much more than that. There was loads and loads of gold. The student was going to be okay. Raghu could pay him. So Raghu paid him, and the student wanted to do something for Raghu in return. But what could he give Raghu now? Raghu had everything he could possibly want. And then something occurred to the student. A blessing he could give Raghu that Raghu didn't have already. So, as he left the king, laden down with golden raindrops, the student stopped and he blessed the king. May you have a son worthy of you. The story of King Raghu and the student is one you'll hear in lots of different versions in lots of different books. But that version was from one of the older books called the Raghu Vamsa the dynasty of Raghu. It tells the story of the ancestors of Rama. Because King Raghu's son was a great man, just as the student had said he would be. In fact, such a great man that his son turned out to be the father of King Rama himself. Even if you've never heard the story of King Raghu and the student before, though, bits of that version of the story should sound a little bit familiar at least if you've been listening to the previous episodes of this podcast. 
some of those actions sound really quite similar to some of the Gupta emperors. And in fact, the work was written by Kalidasa, the court poet of the Guptas, maybe the greatest writer in Sanskrit. He probably worked for Chandragupta II. And many historians think that the character of Raghu was based on the Gupta emperors. Some of the details match pretty closely to the emperor Samudragupta, the great conqueror of India. The bit about marching down to the east coast and then marching down southwards, that matches pretty much exactly what Samudragupta did, even conquering the same people along the way. But most of all, the character of Raghu in Kalidasa's work seems to be based on Chandragupta II, Samudra's son, and also the focus of this episode. Just like the Raghu in, the story, in that story, Chandragupta II conquered the western side of India. And just like Raghu in that story, Chandragupta II's rule was one where gold seemed to rain down. The whole country went through a golden age. Now, cynics will tell you that you never know you're living in a golden age until it's over. But the Guptas knew. And they talked about it as a golden age. In fact, they talked about it so much that reigning gold became a sort of a cliché, kept on cropping up all over the literature. There were even gold coins with pictures of other gold coins pouring out on them. And it was Chandragupta II who ushered in this golden age. We're going to do a couple of episodes on him, and this is the first. So in this episode, we're going to look at the political facts. We'll watch as he consolidates his lands and he conquers some more lands. And in the next episode, we're going to look at the golden age itself and look at both the legend and the reality of Chandragupta's India. By the way, I've just called him Chandragupta. His proper name for historians is Chandragupta II, and that's because there are two other Chandraguptas we've already talked about in this uh, podcast. There was Chandragupta we talked about a few weeks ago in Series 3, and then way back in the first series there was Chandragupta Maurya. But I won't be mentioning those other two Chandraguptas in these two episodes, so if you hear Chandragupta, then I mean Chandragupta II. All of that is a bit perplexing, so let's just get down to the episode. When Chandragupta II came to the throne, it came with a wave of scandal. Not only had the Shakas invaded, the story said that Chandragupta had killed his own brother, the king, and taken the throne for himself. The stories even said that Chandragupta had married his brother's wife. That was something entirely unheard of in ancient India, either in stories or in real life. That's what the stories said about Chandragupta anyway, and those were the stories that Chandragupta himself put out. That was about the worst possible start an emperor could have. But Chandragupta was a very competent man, and he was about to fix it quickly. Just like King Raghu had in the story, Chandragupta put down a confederacy of rebel kings over in the east in the Bay of Bengal. But the east? That was old hat. His father had conquered all of that stuff all the way down to the pearl fisheries of the south. Chandragupta's eyes were turned, not to the east, but to the west. Where, beyond the edge of his father's empire, piles of gold lay, waiting to be taken by a glorious emperor, anyone strong enough to take them. And because Chandragupta's eyes were looking to the west, that meant he had, first of all, to go south. Let me explain. South of the Gupta Empire were the Varkatakas, the people of the mountain. 
Now, just three generations ago, they'd been more powerful than the Gupta Empire. They'd threatened the Gupta borders, or their allies had. And their king had announced himself emperor. And then just a generation ago, Chandragupta's father, the great conqueror, had come through, and by a combination of good timing and sheer guts, he had killed the Varkataka king. And the Varkatakas were now ruled by the old king's son. He was a young man, and by all accounts he was a modest sort of chap, almost to the point of meekness. And he was also described as tender-hearted. Not what you'd think of as a great warrior. But actually, the new king, he'd done well enough. He'd kept up the large kingdom of his father pretty much intact. A lot of that kingdom was in the hills, and I suppose it's easier, right? Your people know the terrain, they know where to hide, they know where to attack, and the invader doesn't really know, so it's easier to defend. In any case, Chandragupta II wasn't going to try and flush the mountain people from their mountain home. He wasn't going to beat them with his army, he was going to beat them with his daughter. This was his daughter from his first marriage. Way back before he'd become king and killed his brother and married his wife, he'd had another wife. His father had married him to a fierce princess from one of the Naga, the snake peoples. He was chosen by his father, no doubt, for political reasons. Now, Chandragupta had since found another queen, but in the meantime, from this political alliance, this political marriage, he'd had four children. Three sons and one daughter. We don't hear that much about the sons. In fact, we don't actually know what their names were in full. Come to think of it, there's even a chance they just didn't exist. But about the daughter, we hear a lot about her. Her name was Pravavati, and she will certainly be a player on the stage of history. Next episode. For now, though, her role is just to get married and cement an alliance. Because Chandragupta married her to the king of the Varkatakas. And remember, the king of the Varkatakas was the one whose own father had been killed by Chandragupta's father. But nonetheless, he accepted. This was not an alliance of equals. The details of the alliance show just how far the Guptas had come. Way back at the start of the Gupta Empire, only a few generations ago, the Guptas had made another alliance. The Gupta Emperor had married a princess from a tribe to the north. You can hear about that in an earlier episode. And back then, the Guptas had been very proud indeed of their alliance. They had written the Queen's name on their coins, they'd even depicted the Queen on their coins, and on the other side of their coins, they'd put the name and the symbol of her tribe. How things had changed in the generation since then. Now, the shoe was on the other foot. It was now the Guptas' allies who were proud of being allied with the Guptas and not vice versa. Prabhavati Gupta had married into the Varkatakas, but she kept her Gupta name. She kept on calling herself Gupta. And when the Varkataka scribes came to write her genealogy in the Varkataka family inscriptions, they did something almost unheard of. Rather than telling the story of the genealogy, the ancestors of the family she had joined when she'd married, the Varkatakas, they wrote the genealogy of her old family, the Guptas. The Guptas were still primary in her life, and even the Varkatakas, her new family, recognised that. The scribe even wrote the genealogy 
in Gupta-style lettering. The Vokhartikas, by all accounts, were well and truly devoted to their Gupta princess and to her Gupta family. And so they were behind Chandragupta II 100%. And that, in the end, was going to cost the Vokhartikas their king. Once Chandragupta II had made his alliance, made his southern border secure, he headed towards his real target, to the west. There lay the Shakas. We might call them the Scythians. They were foreigners. They were from outside India. They crept up in the second series of this podcast. And they ruled the wealthy port cities along the west coast of India, the trade ports. And they also ruled the mountain passes that threaded their way from those ports inland to the centre of India. The Shakas had ruled this land for 300 years. That's an awful long time. I mean, any Shaka living in West India at the time of Chandragupta II would have been born there. And so would their father, and so would their father's father, and their grandfather's grandfather. Going back 12 generations. That's your grandfather's 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 grandfather. Further than the Enlightenment and the French Revolution is from us. The Shakas had been there so long they'd adopted an awful lot of Indian culture. Their rulers now used Hindu names, and they followed Brahminical orthodoxy. Even their clothing had started to change, become more Indianized, and their language was now a very refined Sanskrit. Now, kings from people who had been in India for millennia didn't always manage to get refined Sanskrit, and women almost never did. The 300 years of Shaka rule had made the Shakas almost part of the social landscape. And those 300 years also did something to the Indian people who were ruled by the Shakas. It made, to them, Shaka rule seem inevitable. The Shakas seemed as absolutely unmovable as stones. The Shakas had been there when a great foreign power had swept in and conquered India and formed an empire. The Shakas had joined that empire, they'd survived, they'd even thrived. And when that foreign empire disintegrated, more than a hundred years later, the Shakas were still there, and still thriving. And they were still there now, untouched by the powerful Vokartikas next door, still going strong. Chandragupta decided that the Shakas had been going strong long enough. With his southern flank safe with the new marriage alliance and the Vokartikas on board, he started to plan his attack on the Shakas. And there were plenty of good reasons to attack the Shakas. One was simple bloody revenge. The Shakas, back before Chandragupta had got into power, had invaded Gupta's territory and they'd threatened Chandragupta's own brother. Now, of course, Chandragupta had done more than threaten his brother. He'd murdered him. But that was beside the point. The Shakas needed to be punished. There were other, cooler reasons to attack the Shakas too. The Shakas controlled those ports on the west coast of India, and in the old days, those ports had been laden down with gold. The gold poured in from Rome, so much so that Romans thought it might become a real economic or at least moral problem for them. Roman gold poured in and it was exchanged for Indian luxuries, spices mostly. And also Chinese luxuries too, silk that come in from the land route from China and was now being shipped across to Rome. So 
I know we think of silk as going along the Silk Road, over the top of the Himalayas, not through India at all, but that route was often dangerous and sometimes completely impossible. So plenty of silk just passed through India, and it made its way from those ports on the western coast, the Shaka ports, up into Persia, and then finally finding their home on the shoulders of rich aristocratic women in Rome. So the Shaka ports on the west coast, they were rich from all that trade in luxuries. But that that was the old days. And whilst Chandragupta had been forging an alliance with the Varkatakas down south, things had probably changed a little bit. It was a couple of decades later, and the orders of silk and spice from Rome had tailed off. And that was because Rome herself was failing. In only a few years, three or four, it would be occupied by the Goths. The world of the rich Roman aristocrat was about to end, and so too was the large market for Indian luxuries. We know of at least one guild of silk merchants who moved away from the Shaka ports, heading inland, trying to find better pickings. And they were probably one of many different guilds considering the move. The great stream of gold from Rome was about to end. Or so you would have thought. You would have thought that, with their world crumbling around them, the Roman aristocrats would stop worrying so much about the cut of their cloth and the spice of their supper and pay more attention to down-to-earth matters like not being killed. But the aristocrats of Rome were more addicted to their luxuries than that. Doubtless there was a dip of trade at the Shaka ports, but not a collapse of trade. Because when the end finally came from Rome, when the Goths finally invaded, they asked for a ransom. Pay us if you want us not to destroy your city, they said. And they were paid. In luxuries that would have come mostly through these shaka ports. 4,000 lines of silk. 3,000 pounds of pepper. Rome, in its dying years, was still buying big from India. And there was another reason why shaka ports were still doing reasonably brisk business, even if less brisk than before. Trade often went through Persia, particularly the silk trade. And where before... Much of that trade had made its way from Persia to Rome. Now, much of that trade made its way from Persia to the new capital of the Roman Empire, Constantinople. And that just wouldn't have mattered that much to the merchants at the Shaka ports in India. Anyway, about the same time that the Goths were preparing to invade Rome, Chandragupta was preparing to attack the Shakas. And he ordered his army not to assemble in the capital, Patliputra, the city we've been following. And that's because Patliputra was way too far over to the east. It was a really long walk from there to Shaka territory. Instead, he ordered his army to assemble a couple of weeks' walk south and west of Patliputra, near the great city of Ujjain, slap bang in the centre of northern India. In fact, the area around Ujjain, Malva, that land was going to become his military hub. His father had conquered it, and his father had made parts of it the emperor's personal possession. And Chandragupta had inherited it, and he was going to use it well. In this territory was the town of Iran, nestled into the bend in a river. It was an excellent natural fort. Lots of battles were fought there. To the south, there were hills, and those were occupied by the new allies, the Varkatakas. And they would be able to come and get their soldiers to join the assembling army. In between the hills and Iran, there were the cities of Phidisha and the great city of Ujjain. 
a stronghold of ancient India, and increasingly the central city of the empire. Patliputra remained the capital, but Ujjain, for the next few decades, was really where it was at. Most importantly, though, this land gave access west. And there, the Shakas were waiting, and the Shaka gold was waiting too. We don't know any of the details of the Shaka Wars. Some historians guess that it was a quick surgical strike that was all over before Christmas. Other historians think that it was a prolonged war, there were decades of bloodshed. But it's really just a big hole in our history. There's a large run-up to it, and there's a lot of fanfare after it, but in between them, nothing much is known. When all is said and done, pretty much all we know from the war is that the Shaka king was killed and the territory was added to the Gupta Empire. Chandragupta had won, and he'd earned himself a new title, Shakari, enemy of the Shakas. And he was said now to reign up to the sea. Actually, up to the sea is not really that good of a title. Lots of kings were called uh, kings who reigned up to the sea, even minor kings. Even minor kings who ruled way away from the sea and definitely didn't rule up to the sea at all. So it's not such a great title. But the whole enemy of the Shakas thing, that was a good title. That was earned. And it became a title of legend. After the Shaka War was over, the army returned back to the staging post, that area I just described as becoming now the new centre of the empire. And now it kind of literally was the centre of the empire, now that the emperors had conquered both the east and the west. And they started a great outpouring of celebration of the victory. One of Chandragupta's generals, who was a Buddhist, went to a nearby hill, and there was an old stupa up there and also a community of monks. It's called Sanchi. We've visited before in a podcasty sort of way in a previous episode. The general went up there and he left a donation, sponsoring some building work with an inscription on it. And the inscription said, in an, an awkwardly modest sort of way, that he had been victorious in several battles. There were grander mementos of the wars too, though. Just a few miles away from Sanchi was another hill a smaller one and a bit closer to town. And on top of this was a great building. We actually don't know what the building was anymore, but it seems like it was pretty humongous. But we're not looking at the building, we're looking beneath the hill. And there, some caves were carved. Some of them were carved in Chandragupta's time. These are ornate things with multiple panels of quite deep relief. We'll be visiting these places again before the series is out, I'm pretty sure. But now we're interested in heading just to two of those caves. The first of these caves is carved into an odd ball of rock. It's only a few metres across, and there's another flattish slab of rock balanced on top. It's a bit like a, bit like a monolithic pumpkin wearing a plate as a hat. And in the side of the monolithic pumpkin is a door, carved into it. On either side... There are the sculptures of two guardians of the door. And if you go in, there's an inscription. The words of Chandragupta's Minister for Peace and War. His Secretary of State, his Minister of Defence. 
and the inscription says that he'd come here with Chandragupta himself, seeking to conquer the whole world. And the inscription says, Chandragupta was such a king that that's exactly what he would accomplish. And that's exactly what he did accomplish. He conquered kingdoms and he made the kings his slaves. The other cave we're here to see is just a bit further down. Actually, it's called a cave, but it's not really a cave in the traditional sense. It's more of an indentation, about a metre thick. But inside that indentation is perhaps the most famous sculpture from the Gupta era. It's the very first depiction we have of the story of the boar saving the earth. The story's got a bunch of different versions, and they go, one of them goes roughly like this. One day, an Asura, a demon, managed to secure a wish from Brahma. And so he told Brahma, I wish to be invulnerable. I wish it to be that no one can harm me. No human, no elephant, no horse, no tiger, no dog. And he went on to go and list all of the things and animals he could think of so that he would be invulnerable to everything and nothing could possibly harm him. And Brahma granted him the wish. So the demon went down to earth and he started to cause trouble. He started to become a tyrant. He started to destroy things with reckless abandon. Almost as if he was completely invulnerable and no one could do anything back to him. And that's because he was completely invulnerable. In fact, the demon did so much damage to the earth that the earth herself began to sink beneath the ocean. The earth was distraught. And taking the form of a cow... She went to Vishnu and begged for Vishnu's help. But what was Vishnu to do? This demon was immune to everything. Did I say immune to everything? Not quite, because the demon had forgotten about the boar. He hadn't asked Brahma to make him immune to the boar. So Vishnu took on the form of a boar. And he went down into the waters, and there he wrestled with the demon for a thousand years. And finally, he was victorious, and he rose up to the surface, above the waters, carrying the earth, clinging to his tusks. And that moment, when he comes up from the waters with the earth and his tusk victorious, that's the moment depicted in this sculpture, in that indentation, in that cave. Vishnu's incarnation as a boar is there. The earth clinging to his tusks. And the earth is depicted again, resting on a lotus plant near his feet, having fallen back down from the tusks, back down to her proper place. But the sculpture has other elements. Things I've not mentioned in that story. And that's because they're things from different versions of the story. There's a naga, a snake being, beneath Vishnu's feet, having been defeated by him. That's from a different version of the story. There's the rivers Ganga and Yamuna, personified, standing on the side. In fact, this is the very first time in Indian art we see them depicted as separate. Now, the Ganga and the Yamuna, they don't really appear in the story at all. Come to think of it, none of the versions of the story we have exactly match what this sculpture is depicting. So you might begin to suspect that something else is going on with all of these symbols in this complex sculpture. Maybe this sculpture was doing more than just telling the story 
of Vishnu saving the earth. Maybe there was another story going on at the same time, a story wrapped up in the world of Chandragupta II. After all, Vishnu was the god who the Gupta emperors were personally devoted to, and who to an extent they saw themselves as related to, maybe even embodiments of. But it's more specifically Gupta than that. Those two rivers we mentioned, the Ganga and the Yamuna, who appear in the sculpture but don't really seem to be linked into the story in any way. Well, those are the two rivers which meet at the point where the Gupta Empire started, Allahabad. Perhaps most tellingly though, if you're looking for things which remind you of Chandragupta, if you look at the sculpture on the back wall, there are throngs of people People who, according to the Vishnu story, Vishnu's just defeated. They're the demon armies. But if you look really closely, you'll notice from the clothes and from the way they look, they look an awful lot like shakas. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought we just had to read from the Raghuvamsa. That's the thing with the story of Raghu we started with. And as I said earlier, it was done by the great poet Kalidasa. One day I will read a bit of the actual original Sanskrit and you get a feel for how it sounded. Maybe I'll give it a go translating it myself. You really don't get a sense of the beauty and the wonder of it, just from the translation I'm going to give you now. Nevertheless, here's the description of King Raghu from the poem. Maybe you can start to get just a glimmer of the beauty of this work. It goes like this. Raghu, consecrated to the universal sovereignty, was served by Padma as it seemed, herself invisible by holding over him a lotus umbrella discernible from the halo of radiance that encircled him. And the goddess of learning too, being present in the panegyrizing bards at stated hours, served him, worthy of praise, with eulogies full of sense. The earth, though enjoyed by estimable monarchs, with Manu at their head, appeared in his case like one that had no previous master. He, by the justice of his punishments, won the heart of all the people, like the southern breeze, which is neither very cold nor excessively hot, and therefore delightful to all. By his possessing superior virtues, the people were made to long less for his father by him, just as they are by the fruit of the mango tree for its blossoming. By men versed in the political art, two courses, the fair and the unfair, were pointed out to the new king, but the first alone was adopted by him, and not the second. 
even the qualities of the five primary elements now attained a fresh excellence. Under his new regime, everything became new. As the moon by its power to delight is rightly called Chandra, and as the sun by its diffusing heat is correctly named Tarpana, so he, by pleasing his subjects, was justly styled Raja. Granted that his eyes were large, extending to the ears, but the function of real eyes was discharged in his case by his knowledge of the Shastras, pointing out to him the minute details of his regal duties. Now, as he was at ease by the pacification of his kingdom, there came to him, like a second goddess of wealth, autumn, marked by lotuses. His exceedingly unbearable prowess and the intolerable heat of the sun simultaneously pervaded all the quarters of heaven, their path being cleared by the clouds, lightened by their contents being discharged. Indra withdrew his pluvial bow, and Raghu took up his victorious one, for they both took up their respective bows in turn for the good of the people. And that's it for this episode. Thank you very much indeed for listening. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Sneho Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. There's a link to the website in the description of the podcast. Next week, the golden age of the Gupta Empire begins. Until then, have a great week and take care. Thank you.